And we'll oftentimes have people say, I didn't have any trauma. Um, nothing happened to me. We lived in a good home. This was, it's never about making blame onto our parents mm-hmm. or to anybody else. Because if we just blame, all we do is we become victims and victims can't make good decisions for ourselves. But instead, it's just about going, this is just what happened. I don't want to deny also my history. But now, how am I reacting and responding to what happened? So now what's my responsibility? And that's where I believe this is so important is that instead of just turning a blind eye to my reactions and going, well, I guess that's just a part of my dark side, is to go, no, wait a minute. There is a part of me that's reacting to something and I, in the moment, I, maybe I can't seem to change it. And then later on, I'll judge it and go, oh, I wish I hadn't gone mm-hmm. there. Well, then it, wouldn't it be great if there is a method of helping me become aware of the moment I go into the reaction and to begin to heal what's fueling that? Friends, it's Morgan, and welcome back to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. The heart behind Become Good Soil is to reach the many and find the few. That in every generation, there are a few that say yes, that want to risk becoming wholeheartedly the kind of person that walks intimately with God, that steps into a path and a process of ever-increasing maturity and wholeheartedness and true union with God. That's what I'm after, and my hope is that if you're listening, you are as well. It's a joy to bring you this next podcast. As you know with Become Good Soil, sometimes it's interviews with wise guides, sometimes it's teaching pieces, sometimes it's featuring content from other opportunities. At the close of last year and into this year, we had the privilege of a couple powerful episodes. One was The Body Keeps the Score that I featured Sherry, where we went into some deep inner healing prayer and explored the idea of what it means to be embodied creatures and how important the body is in our spiritual restoration The response to that podcast was really significant. Following The Body Keeps the Score, we had a pause for Zechariah and some preparation for Advent and diving into the bit of the liturgical season. And then we went into a two-part series with Gary Unruh. He's a renowned child psychiatrist, and he does the modality of CBT, Um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So one of the things we try to explore are many of the streams that Jesus provides for pervasive inner transformation. The stream of CBT is probably the one that most people are familiar with when they say, I'm seeking out counseling. However, there's all different forms of modalities that can aid in our process of being apprenticed in the kingdom of God. Another one is EMDR. A lot of people in our world have benefited um, immensely from that sort of care. Another one is deliverance ministry. I know early in these days, 
uh, John and myself and many of our friends participated with a man who's now crossed over the kingdom, but Art Loomis, and we would walk through these deliverance sessions, and they were very powerful, built from Neil Anderson and Freedom in Christ, walking through an inventory of our spiritual story and breaking strongholds, breaking agreements, and coming into alignment and agreement with God. There are all sorts of modalities, and I want to explore a different one and one that was a massive rescue for me. And that modality today that we'll explore is called experiential therapy. Generally speaking, it's a very broad category. It's very creative. Experiential therapy is simply when a person uses expressive tools or props or perhaps sort of role-playing to create or recreate a current or historic relationship or circumstance in their life. And the reason why I want to share the history of coming into this is the body keeps the score really helped us to understand the role of the body. Experiential therapy is embodied counseling and healing prayer. And it's a way of incorporating your body either in movement or using a prop or using tools or using role-playing to enter into a situation. Often we use a person to represent us in the sort of sculpt work or role-playing so we can step back and actually observe it. And God will use that to show us to illuminate pieces of our story or interpretations of what's going on in a way that we could never see if we were in it. I remember the first time I had my golf swing tape recorded. This was back in high school. The same with having my swim stroke recorded. No matter what someone told me about my golf swing, when I saw it as an outsider looking in, I was able to understand nuances that really formed me as I continued to train in those sports. The same is very true about experiential therapy. I walked into my very first experiential therapy activity and I was in a group of 11 people with one clinical director and the assignment was take these 10 rolls of masking tape, use any color that you want and illustrate a picture on the walls. We had wooden walls around us of where you are in our community. And so these were people that just met each other and we were not in a physical community. We were just getting to know each other as a week of therapy. But we, that was all the instruction is build your house. We are a community. What does your house look like? You're free to go. And with very little leadership, we all jumped in and went where we were felt to express something on the inside. It was fascinating. We looked at those expressions in simple masking tape over a week. And every one of those expressions said something very particular about each person in our group, about their nature, about their story, and about their present pain. And so it was that activity with simple masking tape that unlocked this entire dimension of us getting to know each other because then over time, each one of us explained what we made with masking tape and why that was important to us. There's an infinite number of expressions and Bill Loki, our guest today, is a master behind this. He served as a senior clinical director for on-site workshops outside of Nashville, Tennessee for over a decade. He's brilliant as a caregiver 
particularly in the modality of experiential therapy. I received more healing from Christ and trauma and restoration and true freedom in this modality than I've experienced in any other modality. It was brand new to me just a few years ago. It's something I continue to practice and play with, experiment with uh, friends and colleagues. And I wanted to bring this modality to you in this podcast. Again, another tool in your tool belt, an arrow in your quiver, as we together go into the deep waters, as we take deeper risks to pursue the things that God has us to receive and participate with inner pervasive transformation. Friends, as Jesus says, you'll know it by its fruit. And so what is the fruit? The fruit we're after is joy and peace and intimate relationship and deep well-being, meaningful life and genuine care received and offered to others. We want our whole hearts back as men and as women. And experiential therapy is a beautiful modality And Bill and Lori Loki are amazing caregivers and wise guides. And so I want to dive into a podcast. But before I do that, just a couple housekeeping announcements. If you are a listener regularly of the podcast and you receive that through some streaming platform, like the podcast app in your iPhone or on YouTube, you may not know that every podcast has a corresponding page on becomegoodsoil.com. It's where we link to other books, other resources, reflection questions, other ideas. I encourage you, if you don't come to the podcast through the website, you don't receive the subscription, make sure you go to those pages to check out other resources. And this podcast is a really important example because I'll have the contact information for Bill and Lori, but there are also other experiential therapists that Bill and Lori recommend. None of them have I participated with personally, but Bill and Lori are simply one couple. And so if you are looking to explore this modality, these are other resources that may be helpful. As we're diving into a new year, I know a lot of guys have reached out to me and in this COVID environment, they're taking the opportunity to go through becoming a king in a small group. They're going through in person, they're going through as a Zoom group. It's been really beautiful to jump on Zoom calls and participate with these groups. And so if you are impressed to dive into a becoming a king group, there is some feedback on a hidden page that you may or may not know about, becomingaking.com slash launch team in the bottom of that page where it says, help us share this under Zoom groups, there's a form and you can let us know about your group. Let us know what country you're in, where your group is, how big it is, and how long it's it's going to take place. And what we're doing is inviting all of those groups and group leaders to participate in exclusive gatherings with me where I can jump on a Zoom call with multiple groups and answer questions, pray for people, go deeper and let it be a very unique piece of going through becoming a king that's only accessible because you're part of this tribe. So if God leads you to dive into a becoming a king group, please let us know and jump in for one of those Zoom calls. If you don't receive regular emails from Become Good Soil, you'll want to make sure you're subscribed to the list. I know a lot of people are podcast subscribers, but they don't receive blogs, they don't receive the podcast details, they don't receive the dispatches and all the other resources that are being offered through Become Good Soil 
to go deeper. And so I encourage you, if you're not receiving a regular email from us, we know we have alumni that are not on the subscription list and a lot of allies in this growing tribe out there. Please, at some point today, go to becomegoodsoil.com, subscribe for that list. Our mission is to continue to provide soul-strengthening resources for you. And so, friends, let's now turn a corner and dive in with a dear friend and mentor and wise guide in the category of experiential therapy. Father, thank you for this time with Bill. Thank you for making a way for his experience and his miles as an apprentice in your kingdom, as a father, as a king, as a leader, as a counselor and caregiver, as a therapist. Thank you that you have brought him to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher, that you would be our wise guide. And for each of us, there'd be something new and risky and creative that's on your heart for us to receive. Father, we announce your abundance. We announce your affection. We announce your provision. You are on time and in your kingdom as your sons, as your daughters. We are on time in you and with you. And so Jesus, by your power, we ask that you would make the impossible possible. God, that your supernatural work would come to disarm every critical spirit, everything set against your work in us through this podcast, every spirit of doubt, fear, and unbelief, every uncertainty, everything that keeps us from risking all of our life, God, on you and your kingdom. Jesus, I pray that you would be our elder brother, that you would shepherd us faithfully into what you have next, that you would open up our eyes illuminate our imagination, that your creativity, Jesus, would become our creativity. We receive you. We align with you, God, your pace, your portion, your rhythm. We ask that you would anoint Bill. You would anoint this time. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're bringing. We want more of us, God, to belong to more of you. Come, Lord Jesus shepherd us in your name. Amen. One of the beautiful distinctions that I've experienced in relationship with you that I hadn't experienced with anyone before in my life is this idea that you named for me of experiential therapy. And so you're naming these ideas of, I am here, right? That God says, I am here. And sometimes we'll know that in our mind. We'll know that intellectually. We'll know that theologically, this distinction where why am I not experiencing my body, right? I can go to all the church services I want and hear that God is near, but I actually don't experience that in my body. And so in my mm-hmm. secret places, my, my true belief system is screaming, I'm on my own. And so how have you used that modality now for decades to help people move from ideas that are true to an actual experience of well-being in their body? Yeah. Assume that's brand new and no one's heard it. 
what is experiential therapy and how would you use that in this situation? Experiential therapy is this beautiful modality. Um, the very first time I ever experienced it, I was in this group, small group of people, and um, they said, we want to teach you and show you. And so uh, I said, okay, I raised my hand. I want to I want to experience this and see what the, we're talking about it. And so I said, well, what would you like to see? And I said, I want to look at this prayer group that I was a part of for years that was falling apart. And it had been a real source of, of comfort for me. And so we had everybody in the room get up and I had each person represent one of the people that was in the prayer group that I'd been in. They said, just separate them for the space in this room to represent the amount of space that you feel like is in between you and your relationship, how close you are, how far away you are. And so we kind of spaced people around, had someone to also represent me so that I got to step back and look at the picture of my relationship with all these people in this prayer group by the, using the distance in the room or the closeness in the room. And I stood back and looked at it, and I still was kind of thinking, well, what's the big deal with this? And then she said, now I want you to take these pieces of rope or twine and um, take them from the person who's representing you in this prayer group and run them to all the people that you feel some sort of responsibility for. So you're holding twine. So the, holding, the person representing you yeah, is holding pieces scope. of okay. twine and then running the other ends of those twines to all the people that I felt some sort of responsibility for, which was almost everybody in the group for some reason or another. And then I stood back and looked at that, and then just my mouth dropped open. It was like, oh, my goodness. No wonder I'm feeling depleted here instead of feeling something. And, um, and not only feeling responsible in some way, but also trying to get them to be committed back to the group because it had been such an encouragement also for me, though. And when I saw that, something happened in me that it was like, this is amazing because just in seeing what we call in experiential therapy, concretizing, mm -hmm. taking this concept that's in my head, but it's just there and suddenly seeing it in a concrete form and just all of these things felt, I felt inside of me. I was like, oh, now I get it. Now I understand what's going on in me and what's going on in the group. And, and then they actually had me go and say some things to the different people who were actually just in this group representing my prayer yes. group members. But as I went around, I began to find the freedom because I would say, I understand why you're leaving the group now, but I understand, for instance, one of them, that you're, in, you're now in a new relationship and, and this is what you're really longing for and this is, you're moving on with your life. And I started feeling really good things for this person that they're getting to move on with their life and, and I started to feel the, the peace around all of those things. And uh, so when I left, literally this 20-minute sculpt, as we would call it, I had this whole new sense of peace around something that had been troubling for me and really giving blessings for some of these people that they, as they moved on. Mm. Now, that was my first experience. And then as I began to do more of this and learn more of it, I began to start to understand, but also start to experience, which of course is why it's called experiential therapy. And I got to have conversations with people that represented real people in my life, or even conversations with parts of myself. Yes. 
I began to understand the struggle that was going on in me. I began to understand some of the loneliness that was going on inside of me. What's so helpful about this, Bill, is so we're talking about the presenting problem seemed to be this prayer group, right? Where in some ways in the grand scheme of your life, it's important, but it's not seemingly the central theme. But doing this sculpt work, this experience, and actually standing back and, and seeing it, it led you on a treasure trail to get to what you're naming is this shame that you carried all your life. I think it's very interesting that God will use, we're we're embodied creatures, right? We're created um, with bodies and that's where the dwelling place is of, of the living God in us. Our soul is contained in a body. And so I think what you're giving visibility to that's so important is this method can sometimes access parts of our soul that we can't otherwise get to without using our bodies. So as you're talking about this category, could you just run down some other examples of now that was 17 or 18 years ago and we're sitting here today and you remember it like it's yesterday. And, And I've had similar experiences when I was under your leadership where I can tell you precisely what I did in a sculpt and what God revealed and healed and dismantled and restored in it. So for our friends listening, what are some other examples of sculpting? What are some other examples of experiential therapy that are like an easy on-ramp to taking something that someone, anyone could do in their own power to unpack or investigate some presenting challenge in their life? Yeah, I, I use this example So I remember it a lot because it is a simple one. But I remember um, then when I became a group leader at OnSite and was leading there um, and um, was working with this man who says, I have problems going on with my uh, with my boss at work. And he said, we really have a lot of struggles and I don't understand it. But if I don't do something, um, I may lose my job. And so uh, we had this guy in the group then step in and, um, and, and you can do this. It doesn't have to be in a group. You can do this in individual therapy. I'm now in private practice. Um, and, uh, and just, you can just do this even with an empty chair, mm-hmm. um, you know, just pretending that the boss is, is there, but he just said, say to the boss, just what you wish you could say. You wouldn't really say this to him because you might get fired, but what is it you really wish? And so he began to just say some things, you know, just about, I'm, I feel angry at you and you and you demean me and you put me down and, and I get so angry, you know, and he began to go down this road and I just stopped and I just said, okay, hang on a second. Is there anybody that you ever felt the same way with earlier? And he looked at me and he was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it was like, my dad. And so he said, okay, let's bring somebody else up to step in to represent your dad. So a physical person in the space is now taking the place of his dad. Yeah, and he knows, obviously, this isn't my dad. Yes. But it's funny how you, when you begin to just say, I want someone to step into the space or bring in another empty chair and just talk to and imagine your father standing mm-hmm. there. Um, and he began to go, oh, yeah, I felt some of the same way with you. And I felt like there was this demeaning with you. And, and then he began to realize that it was like, I, I never felt like you really, you supported me until he finally kind of got to that bottom line statement, which was, 
I just wanted you to say you were proud of me. Mm. And you never said that. You never really got there. You never, you never chose me as kind of um, someone that you favored, or I never felt you delighted in me. I'm not sure that's the exact word, but that's where he was going. And then suddenly, without any prompting, he looked back at the other person who represented his boss and went, oh, my goodness, I get it. I've been putting all of my dad's stuff on you. And I've been saying that that basically you're the reason for me feeling all this stuff, but this was really about my dad. And yes, there's some stuff I'm still kind of pissed off at you about, mm-hmm. but but most of this is really coming from this reservoir of feelings that have come from my dad. And so there's this feeling that we oftentimes will say, if something starts to feel hysterical, it's likely historical, that it's likely something that's not been healed from the past that I'm still playing out. And so what happened for him was immediately he was saying, I now know I want to go back. I want to talk to my boss. And number one, I want to apologize for all this stuff I've been putting on him and then see if we can talk about what it is that is in the way with us. Mm. And it just immediately, again, gave him some clarity that was now something that he wanted to do and a change that he wanted to make. But he also saw within a very brief amount of time, what his part of this thing was, mm. and what he was doing in this relationship. As you share that story, the word that's coming to my mind that we haven't used yet in this conversation is trauma. We're making some assumptions, but I think it's actually important to back up to, to articulate that trauma is something that shapes nearly all of our relationships. Yeah. And it's something that actually can be identified and healed in the human person. And you've spent the better part of two decades watching people and participating with them in being restored from from places of deep trauma to wholeheartedness. And so I'd love to hear for our listeners, just 101, what is trauma and What's actually taking place in the human being in relationships when we are acting out of trauma and what can we do about it? Oh, man, we, we could spend so long here. I think a part of this is when someone, sometimes the person will say, why do any therapy? Why do any kind of counseling work? But there is this thing that that's a very important part of our brain that when you and I are thinking through stuff and we're talking about it in a rational way or I'm trying to think through, then we're using uh, a lot of the, the prefrontal cortex of our brain, and I won't go too much into detail around this. But when something um, either puts me in a place of fear, which could be what we call the, the capital T trauma, the big stuff, is, is I like to say it's the bear chasing you in the woods, mm-hmm. when you know afterwards you've been traumatized, um, that sends us up to the, um, the limbic part of our brain, which is the fight, flight, or freeze. And then it's the part of our brain that God gave us so that we move into action before we can even think about what I'm supposed to be doing to try to help save my life. It's a, it's a very quick reaction. But there's also a traumas that can occur that we call little t traumas, which I don't think is a real accurate description because they're just as impactful on our brain. But there are those small chronic things that maybe happen over and over and over again in your life, such as maybe one of your caregivers or a parent that just wasn't regularly there for you, or you weren't sure how 
you were going to get taken care of or something that just over and over again, you felt a little bit, let's say, abandoned. And there are many different examples. That's just one. But then you get to an adult place and you realize that when you're afraid of losing a relationship, it's not just a normal amount of fear or pain, but it's suddenly all of this fear and pain that comes up of like, oh no, what's going to happen to me? And it's the same thing that was going on as a child. And so that trauma, when it sends us to that limbic brain, when it sends us to the fight, fight or freeze place, we are in a reaction state that was designed to save our life. But when there's been trauma, then what that means is that has somehow gotten stored in our brain in a way that then when anything else similar happens, we don't think, huh, that seems like a similar thing. We just kind of go into this reaction and now we're into a life-saving place. So a great example, an obvious example would be uh, some guy that's been male or female person who's been in the military. They've seen um, action where there was gunfire or explosions. And then they come back home and they're walking with their friend on the 4th of July. And there's um, there's fireworks. And the one that's maybe been in the battlefield maybe hits the ground just because their body, their brain and reaction goes their their limbic brain says oh my gosh here we go again and before they can even think about it they're on the ground and then where for them it's like their brain is going here we go again and the other person's going oh cool fireworks yes um without a moment and then in you know a few seconds the guy on the ground gets up and goes i'm so sorry i feel embarrassed now they've gotten to kind of come back to their thinking brain and then they just judge themselves going, God, I'm so stupid. Why do I do that? When really it wasn't stupid. It's about their limbic brain going back into that reaction place. That's, I think, some of the difficulty with the impact of trauma is that what we do is that we react sometimes. And our friends maybe say, why do you overreact? Or sometimes, why do you underreact? Mm. And then later, when we're back grounded again in our rational brain, we beat ourselves up and go, oh, I'm such an idiot. Why do I do that? I don't know why. And so we just feel that much more alone, that much more something's wrong with me. When really what's happening is my brain is doing exactly what God designed my brain to do is to help me to survive. The problem is, is that now that there's been this trauma stored in my brain, that when something similar happens, I react because I'm back in that limbic mm. place, which could be for a matter of seconds, minutes, or even days. And that does a lot of damage in our relationships. It's one of the things that my wife and I love to work with, Laurie and I work with, uh, because when you and I are in our limbic place and something has triggered me, whether in a work relationship or in a marriage relationship or something else, um, those reaction places are not usually a very good place mm -hmm. for the relationship. And then later on, we're like, why did I do that? Mm. And that's where we get, I think, so much. We get upset at ourselves, but then we have to think, there must be something wrong with me. And there's really nothing wrong with me other than there's some things that really do need to get healed so that I can get out of that limbic brain as much and be able to be in the place where I know that God's going to be with me and so um, 
I know I'm saying a lot here, but this gets excited. And then one of the things that, that Laurie and I found in our work through other people that have taught us also is that then when you and I get re- in that reaction state of our brain, that is where there are parts of us who have become determined to protect me. I'm just using kind of therapy language yes. now. It's obviously all me, but it feels like there are these guardian parts, these places that say, no, when I get scared, I'm taking over. I am going to do this because I know how to protect myself. And those are the places where sometimes we don't allow Jesus to kind of step in to say, peace, be still. But instead, we're going, no, Jesus, I got this one right now. So in very practical terms, most of me can be given over to God. Dependency, union, God is my sustenance. But you're saying there's a part of me, this guardian, that could be a, a broken off portion of my soul, an unhealed portion where he is trained for self-preservation. Yes. And, yeah. I, and I think what's fascinating, so tying this into sculpt and experiential therapy, the first time you taught on this, I struggled to remember certain things in a classroom setting, but you laid this idea out in a sculpt and it's like yesterday. <laughs> I see it happening where you had the right brain. And you had the left brain. Oh, and these yeah. were people, right? So you took two people out of our class. And the left brain was the put together dockers and a button down. And he sat in this chair. And then the right brain was this wild child, hippie, bright t- T-shirt. And you gave them a horn and a bed sheet. And so each of them had a hand on the bed sheet. And when someone indiscriminately, or I think it was another person, the limbic had the horn. Yeah, right. Had the horn, so yeah. the limbic part of our brain had the horn, and that person had permission to blow this air horn anytime they wanted. <laughs> and at the moment they blew the horn, this sheet came up and covered up both the left brain and the right brain, and the whole brain went offline except for the horn. Yeah. And in that moment, I saw a visual expression of what's happening in the brain, but in my soul, I was validated in compassion of when you say, like, we literally don't have a choice. Our brain goes offline. You know, you just told a 4th of July story about the fireworks. I'll tell a very um, embarrassing 4th of July story (laughs) on me from this last 4th of July. So we're on vacation, we're camping, we're in the small town in Montana, Fourth of July at the local lake, and it's really busy. And I'm trying to drop the family off uh, with stand-up paddle boards. So Joshua oh, and yeah. Sh- Joshua and Abigail are already there, and Sherry's with me in the car. And I pull into this very busy area at the lake at what I think is a loading zone uh, because that's what it looked like based on the lines. And as soon as I stop to unload these paddle boards, the guy behind me starts honking his horn. He's in a Jeep and he's yelling, like, why are you, why are you stopping there? And I turn to Joshua and say, back me up when I fight this guy. And I walk over the Jeep <laughs> and, and I start, I look at this guy and then I catch myself going like, why, why am I getting up in this guy's business over stand up paddle boards? It's 4th of July. And I look at him and I go back to the Jeep and I, or I go back to my truck and I just move my truck to a better place to park and I own the loads of boards. And Joshua's laughing at me. And I realized 
I said those words to Joshua without thinking. I'm not by nature a fighter. Like I don't go around trying to pick fights. And here I am as a dad, almost having a fist fight with this guy and calling my 16 year old son to back me up. But what's interesting is I look in that situation and much like the story you told in that moment, I was under pressure because it was very busy. There was no parking. And this guy just literally blows his horn and sets me off. And I go into that fight, flight, or freeze, and I choose fight. And I I realize I'm so determined to provide for my family. I will beat up this guy or at least get hurt swinging in defense of my family when I realized that's actually rooted in some trauma that's shaped most of my life that out of shame, I need to come through to feel worthy of love and belonging. So I was determined in that broken off place, nothing will keep me from coming through for my family and I will die fighting to unload these paddle boards. And so in this innocuous moment, what, what you could see on the surface is either my wife could say, man, my husband has anger management issues, or my kids can say, what's with dad? Why can't he just have fun? But it's actually a trigger for some deeper place in my story that needs to be excavated. And it's actually data to lead me on a treasure trail to get my whole heart back. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times people will say, you know, why do you want to go into all that stuff? Just leave it behind. You know, it's in the it's in the past. But the problem with things that have impacted us from trauma is they don't stay in the past. Um, Even though it happened in the past, what happens with our brain is, is again, then something else comes along and, um, you know, triggers that feels a little similar. And our brain goes into that again, the limbic response, that reaction And suddenly now what I'm doing is I'm literally reacting to something in the past, but I'm reacting to it in the present as Mm. if it's now happening again. And so that's why I think for a number of people, they'll be wondering, why do I carry this belief with me about my faith and and different things? And yet I get into a certain situation. Yeah. And I either lose my cool or I get into a situation and I freeze and I don't say anything. And I later on go, Why didn't I say something? Why didn't I stand up for this person or for my faith or whatever it is? But freezing is also a part of that reaction. And the sculpt you were talking about that we did, and it was a fun thing to do to see people's eyes kind of open up because I would have oftentimes have people say, I didn't have any trauma. Um, Nothing happened to me. We lived in a good home. This was, it's never about making blame onto our parents Mm -hmm. or to anybody else. Because if we just blame, all we do is we become victims, and victims can't make good decisions for ourselves. But instead, it's just about going, this is just what happened. I don't want to deny also my history. But now, how am I reacting and responding to what happened? So now what's my responsibility? And that's where I believe this is so important, is that instead of just turning a blind eye to my reactions and going, well, I guess that's just a part of my dark side— is to go, no, wait a minute, there is a part of me that's reacting to something. And I, in the moment, maybe I can't seem to change it. And then later on, I'll judge it and go, oh, I wish I hadn't gone Mm -hmm. there. Well, then wouldn't it be great if there is a method 
of helping me become aware of the moment I go into the reaction and to begin to heal what's fueling that. And that's what I see over and over and over again when we do this work with people is that they maybe begin to find it's like, oh, and so one very um, vulnerable memory for me of doing this work was um, I grew up in a home where I had an older brother um, who was a lot of times actually my protector, um, even though we're very different and, um, and mom and dad and and we not only looked good on the outside, but we looked really good a lot of times on the inside. We were actually a good family, but just as any family, we had moments when, you know, your parents lose it or whatever. And, um, and there was this particular memory. I remember doing a piece of work on this experiential work. Um, and um, this moment with my mom, when she got really angry and this rage kind of came out. And, um, and in, this, in, in, in this moment, of doing the experiential work again and having this woman that stepped into this role of my mom, I felt the fear come up over my body and just the freeze. And literally in my brain, just going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this feels like it felt then. And I'll never forget it because for me, there was this sense of Wow, I do. And now I can have compassion on me when I was then because that was really scary. And then becoming so aware of other situations where I'm around someone who seems like a powerful person Mm -hmm. and I just start to freeze and I lose my language and I lose my words. Mm -hmm. And then I'm just like going, oh, I feel just like I was five again. And what's happened to me through that work is catching that so much sooner, maybe still being aware of the freezing and then going, wait a minute, I'm this adult. I got this adult person brain online and being able to quit backgrounded again so much quicker to be able to find, okay, how do I show up again in this moment as an adult rather than just freezing as a kid? And that has really shifted over the years. Um, if, if you and I can do that in all kinds of different situations, then what it means is so much quicker we get back into my rational brain where then I can say, God, I need you right now. Help me to know how to respond. Or I get this adult brain online to say, wait a minute, that's not true. And be able to respond from an adult place mm-hmm. rather than just reacting from this place of I need to either fight or I need to run away or I'm just freezing, which none of those are places where we're going to really get what it is that we're longing for. You use these terms overreact and underreact. And as you say that, I'm aware we need other people's visibility on our life because I'm guessing most of the time, we actually are not aware that we are underreacting or overreacting, right? We, yeah. we, 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 we th- that becomes our new normal. Yes. And so it would be an interesting exercise to ask trusted friends and those close to us to say, where do I underreact or where do I overreact? and use that as an opportunity to explore some of these ideas. Well, there was um, my wife, Laurie, and I, there was when we were early on in our marriage, we got into this argument. And so we were arguing. And I literally remember thinking, 
any moment now, she's going to understand that she's wrong (laughs) (laughs) and that I'm right. And she's going to go, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I haven't seen this. And literally in the middle of the argument, I am I remember actually thinking that way. And there was this thing that she said, which was something like, you know, it seems like you're going to take what I'm saying and you're turning it around on me. And suddenly it hit me. I've heard those words before. Hmm. I've heard those words in past relationships before. And literally my brain did this flip thing where I was like, is it possible that I'm the one that's making the big deal out of this thing and it's not my wife, that I'm the one that's overreacting mm. here instead of her. And literally it was like the, the bottom fell out and my eyes got opened and I was like, have I been doing this most of my life? And I didn't even know it. And that's what that I think that's like is we, we begin to realize that I didn't even know I was overreacting. It felt normal. It felt just like, yep. this is just me. And then to be able to look back and to go, wait a minute, this was, I'm the one that's making the big deal out of this. And it was a wonderful moment for me to go, you know, number one, I can still keep learning things. Mm -hmm. But number two, it was this helpful thing to go, you know, I really do need feedback. Yes. I really do need other people in my life to go, yeah, Bill, when you said that or you told me about that, that was probably a little over the top Mm -hmm. or that was a little... Or, or what was driving you in that moment? Um, and, um, and those are wonderful moments when we can listen and hear to go, oh, you know, I, I thought about that that might have been a reaction rather than um, that was something that I had every right to say. Um, because as we look about our rights and we think, well, but I'm right in this situation. And I want to press this. And as my wife says a lot, two rights usually make a divorce. <laughs> you know, it's not, if, if I stand on my ground of that, it's like, that's not going to get me what I'm really longing for. So Bill, it brings up this other very related topic of the idea of codependency. It's mm-hmm. a term that I had heard before I worked with you at Onsite, but it's something that I never appreciated and full disclosure, never realized how immersed I was in codependency all over uh, in, in most of my relationships because ultimately our trauma manifests in unhealthy relationships. Yeah. And, and fundamentally what you taught me, you, you and Laura use this term, keeping our side of the street clean. You, you use this term of understanding a victim mentality when we become a victim and this fundamental idea of for codependency, the shift from living life to actually managing life where I'm trying to change outside things and people to feel good inside my body, it, it, in my soul. It was a revolutionary transformation. And that's not an overstatement to begin to unpack codependency, take personal responsibility and invite healing. So in light of what you're sharing, could you give an illustration of something in experiential therapy of a sculpt that you would do to teach people what is codependency? And and can you unpack how this relates to the conversation we're having on trauma? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I began to realize was that 
that codependency is in this word that you know people have thrown around for a lot of years now, but it really comes out of trauma. And again, doesn't mean the big things. It can be those chronic smaller things, but it leaves us then with this expectation of how people are going to be with me and how I'm going to be with them and how I want things to be at peace or, or whatever my expectations are. And one of the things that we've learned is that expectation are really premeditated resentments. And when I, um, when I have a set up a scene or a scenario or a relationship where I have expectations of that person, when they don't meet those expectations or the situation doesn't meet it, then I wind up with these resentments that, oh, well, I, I, I'm really angry that this didn't turn out or I expected it to be something different. And so what codependency really is about then is it's, it's finding that um, instead of it being about a love relationship with my friends or with the people around me, I'm really trying to manage, as you said, um, one of the characteristics of codependency is that if I'm around someone and, and that person's starting to have feelings or they're starting to get angry about something or irritated, if anger and irritation has been a, a place in my history where I was like, ooh, that didn't go well mm -hmm. when someone got angry, then for me, my anxiety starts to go up. And so what codependency does in us is we start trying to manage and help get that person to not feel angry. We try to help get them calmed down so that we can get their anger down. And it, we think we're loving that person, but really what we're doing is controlling and manipulating that person so that my anxiety can go down. We will do things that we think are loving acts, but... But really we're controlling and manipulating so I can get my anxiety to go mm -hmm. down. A great example was uh, that I use um, sometimes in one of my talks, but that when my wife and I went Sunday after church, we were driving home and we were going to go on a bike ride. And it was a beautiful morning. And we were going to have this great bike ride. And she began to process, wanted to start to process something. that I don't even remember what it was, but something that was bothering her. And I just remember in my mind thinking, oh, I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk about anything that's down right now. I just want to go have a bike ride and just enjoy ourselves. And so I kept trying to change the topic and she would begin to come back. And finally, there was just a silence. And of course, we all know if we're in a relationship that that's not necessarily a good sign. <laughs> and she said, you know, I don't think you really want to hear what I have to say. And there was a part of me going, you're right. I don't want to hear what you've of got course. to say. And then I realized the healthy part of me kind of came back up to the surface and I was like, ah, you're right. I, I don't need to be doing this, but you've got to understand, really understand what was going on in me as I was trying to get her in a better mood. I thought was a loving thing, trying to change the topic to something positive was when you go back because of in my childhood, there were times when I remembered my mom getting upset or, or being really angry about something. And as a little kid, I learned ways to try to get her in a better mood. Mm. Um, and so in doing so, I learned how to try to, in quotation marks, rescue her. But what I was really doing was I was rescuing me mm. so that I wouldn't have to be afraid in that moment. Um, and so then you fast forward that back to that moment with my wife. And what was happening was is this little subtle trigger of like, oh no, here we go again. I got to get her in a better mood. I got to make her be okay so my anxiety can go down. 
and what I was in was right back in that limbic part of my brain. And so I was, I literally thought I was being loving and being kind and trying to bring up something positive, but really I was managing my anxiety mm-hmm. and trying to control hers. Um, that's not good on relationships. And so what codependency does is it really is, it means that we've lost ourselves. We've lost a sense of ourselves. What it means is I've got to know what it is that's going on in me so that that I can be present with you to have an intimate relationship. I got to know me and know my heart and where I am so that I can then present and be present with another person who that we can then have that intimate or friendship relationship. But if in codependency, I'm going, I don't want to feel this. Then what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, to rescue my heart from pain rescue me from feeling something I don't want to feel, which means now I'm not in touch with my heart and I cannot be in an intimate relationship with another human being when I don't have access to my heart. Mm. And so codependency, the, the damage is really, I lose myself, which means I lose my ability to do relationships, which means even I really lose my ability to bring myself fully in relationship to God. Mm-hmm. If you, if you play that out in a logical conclusion. And so then what I'm doing is I'm walking around trying to make things be okay or trying to manage my world because of my pain rather than saying I'm willing to feel what it is that's really there. It doesn't mean I have to now go around as a victim going, oh, poor pitiful me. It just means when I'm feeling something, sometimes it's appropriate to share that with a person who I'm in a really good relationship with, who I trust. Sometimes it may mean I need to work with a therapist or some trusted person or my a, a pastor or someone that I really trust to go, here's something going on in me and I want to know where this is coming mm-hmm. from because I keep trying to manage the situations around me so that I don't feel the things I don't want to feel, but I wind up losing out on real closeness in relationships. It's so hopeful. And I'm actually smiling, thinking of a moment this past weekend. I had a date with Sherry. We took a drive and we needed to talk about our calendar. And for years, this is like where she tiptoes. She tiptoes because she knows she's going to step on, a, on an IED and no matter yeah. where she goes with her husband and the calendar. Backing up, the reason being, you know, I've struggled with severe anxiety for quite a bit of my life. And it was just in recent years that I began to appreciate how deep that struggle was. And um, what began in our relationship, Bill, you and I, in my work with you, was the total healing Mm -hmm. of this place of anxiety in my soul. Wow. I mean, completely, I would say 99% healed. And just tears come to my eyes now because it's been about nine, 11 months that like that's gone. And the consequence of the anxiety in my life, in my early marriage and the codependency was I would, I absolutely hated talking calendar with her and plane flights and travel. And um, it was overwhelming and just so anxiety provoking. And what I didn't appreciate the time was the root was there are too many relationships for me to come through for well. And to face the calendar is to face my failure as a human being 
to love the people entrusted to my care. And so she had to do this dance around her husband for years to try to get Thanksgiving scheduled, to try to get Mm. a family trip scheduled. So we take a drive, fast forward, and she's like, hey, um, you know, we want to talk about the calendar at some point. And I said, let's talk about right now. And she looked at me and she said, really? And she kind of had a smile on her face like, can I actually hope in this area (laughs) that we can be on a date and be talking about the calendar? And it was an example of, for years, the codependency, I, I blamed other people for my travel schedule. I blame my wife for demanding that I have relationship with people I actually love when in fact I was manipulating and controlling to feel, to avoid death on the inside. And so now the consequence is the last time we end up talking about the calendar and then we end up making love and that never (laughs) happened. Okay. It was such a point of celebration. And so I just want to reflect back is it, it's hard work. And it gets worse before it gets better. But what you're articulating is that there's so much hope for restoration, more than we've come to believe with the, with the people closest to us, those entrusted to our care. Like this is available and there's more that can be done if we will become students of our story and, and just begin even with this on-ramp to say, where am I trying to manage people and things outside of me so that I feel good on the inside. Yeah. And we were just reading this morning in John chapter 14, when Jesus says, peace I give to you, but not as the world gives. And I think that's where all of this comes together with our faith when we're worried that, well, is God going to take this away? And I think what Jesus is saying is, There is a peace that transcends comprehension. There is a peace that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. There was a place in um, when Israel was wanting to take the promised land and they get there and there's 10 spies that say, you know, no, you know, it's, it's gorgeous land. It's amazing, but we can't go against some of these people. They're huge. And, And then there's Joshua and Caleb that say, even though there's no physical reason for us to have hope, even though we see not one ounce of encouragement to say, yes, we can do this, God said, go take it, I'll be with you. And so let's just go do it. But the other 10 feel the fear. And one of the problems in what they say is not just, no, let's don't take it. But it's, no, let's don't take it, and let's go back to becoming slaves in Egypt. Hmm. And that's what you and I do all the time. We say, God, I don't know what's ahead, and I don't know how you're going to work this out, but I'm more familiar with the familiar ground where I've been. And even though the way I've been living isn't exactly what I want, I know how to do that. And so I'd rather go back to the familiar ground of managing life rather than saying, God, I'm going to trust in you. Let's move forward. And I don't have a clue how I'm going to do this differently. And so then I have to step into the fear. Mm -hmm. Then I have to step into, well, what if this is going to make me angry? Or what if this situation, I don't know where it's going to go. 
And so even for me right now, as we said earlier, I don't even know where the cancer is going to go. But if I continue to say, let me manage my emotions the way I've always done it, then that's saying to God, thank you, but no thank you. I'm going to go back to what I'm familiar with because at least I know how to dance around this. Yes, and have some perception of control. But if I move forward and say, I'm trusting you, God, even when you may not take this away from me, even when the, the feelings may, I still may erupt in feelings of betrayal or hurt because someone's continuing to not care about me. And I don't know how to do, deal with that. And Jesus says, I give you a peace that doesn't land have anything to do with what is actually going on. I'm going to give you a wisdom. I'm going to give you a peace in that when you feel hurt and when you feel betrayed, yes, you're still going to get angry. And then I'm going to help you that when you kind of get grounded again to go, you know what? I am still with you in the middle of this. Mm -hmm. I still care about you. And so then my fear of not being um, pertinent anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, as I get older and, and as you, and I get later in my life and thinking, maybe I'm not going to be relevant as much anymore. And God says, you don't even have to be worried about that because I'm with you and I'm going to continue taking you in the places where I want to take you. And if I can really begin to go, I want the presence of God in my life, then sometimes hanging out in the back of the boat, as we said earlier, is exactly where I want to be. Mm. And then it was interesting that after about a year of being in the back of the boat with Jesus and the fear of my cancer, there was a place where I really heard God inside say, okay, it's time to get out of the boat. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> what is, you know, I can't walk on water. And all I heard him say was, it's time to get out of the boat. Mm meaning there's, it's something now it's time for you to begin to walk and act on. And I still don't know exactly what that is other than we have felt a, this calling in our life to, to talk about this message, to, to do some of this work in people's lives, um, to help bring some people to freedom. Um, I don't think in this world we're ever going to feel completely free of all of the struggles but that's not what God calls us to most of the time. I think most of it is God calls us to, no, trust me while I go with you in the mm-hmm. midst of these struggles. And then you will still find a freedom that's not on this earth, but it's a freedom that you know that your life does not consist of this world. Your life does not consist of riches or of things that you're going to get here, but instead your life consists in the richness of me being in you and the Holy Spirit guiding you and loving the people around you. So that then when your wife says, can we talk about the schedule sometime? Then there are moments when you go, you know, let's talk about it now. Yes. And then you wind up in this celebration of, wow, we did that and and we feel really good about each other. And that's the word, celebration. Like there is so much hope. There is, there is so much more available here and now of the kingdom, when we do the work to become wholehearted than we've been led to believe. You know, Bill, I'm thinking as we wrap up, I think of your story and you have seen more stories of people's broken lives than most people. You know, we also have had a front row seat with the Wild Heart team for over 22 years. 
um, a lot of stories and you've seen every version of tragedy and you've seen a lot of stories of restoration. I'm curious, like, what's one thing that you would not want to miss putting words to in all of your observations on the human experience and what God does when we participate with him and his kingdom? What would you not want unsaid? I feel like that has come out of literally one day at a time of going, am I ever going to learn the wisdom? Am I ever going to get it? And then I had a guy come to me a year ago or so at the end of one of, of, of doing some of this work with him. And his compliment was, you know, one of the things I'm so drawn to your work is is that when I hear your story and all the failures and all the mistakes you've made, but then also all the ways that, that God's worked in your life and, and, and then all the successes you've done, he said, when I look at your life, and he said, the compliment is, it worked. Mm. And I was like, what? And he said, what you did in your life worked. He said, look at what you, where you are now, not only in what you do as a living, but you have relationships with your children and with your grandchildren and with friends and and what you do you seem to be really thrilled with what you do in your life and have a passion for and I was like yeah and I think what I would say is is that there may not be a day or a time when everything all comes together at once and you may wonder is it going to ever I think it's more of you keep taking the next step forward but you keep trying to do that in a way that's honest with integrity. I've made some really big mistakes in my life. I've made some failures, done some things that were not in integrity, but then the recovery gets to be in, in, in integrity. Mm -hmm. As we say sometimes, it's not the, it's so much the rip as it's the repair. It's the, the saying, okay, God, I really blew that. I want to have you lead me in the repair of my life of walking where you want me to go, and then trying to do that with a sense of vulnerability, with a sense of being real, and then complete dependence on God that sometimes, I don't know, I don't know where we're going next. Mm -hmm. So I would say is, is I'm finding myself at this place of being really, really glad about where my life is right now, and yet it, it got to be where it is through a lot of pain. And so the measure of my life will not be, and the measure of the faithfulness of God is not going to be, does God heal me from cancer? I may not get healed from cancer. It may be the thing that ends my physical life early, but still in the process, I am going to get to walk through this thing with God, hand in hand, and there's going to be something about this that's going to still be a blessing, not only to me and my relationship with him, but maybe there's some other people that are going to go, I'm walking through something that's really, really hard. And I also want to know that God's with me. And so I guess it's to say is whatever it is that we walk through, does that continue to bring me to cry out to God and go, God, I need you right now. And God does show up. And he shows up sometimes in ways we expect and sometimes ways that we don't. But it's to continue to be real and not to just fake it and to ask for help when we need to ask for help 
and to continue to, to cry out to God and to our friends and to have some other people in your life that you know really know you and you let yourself be known. And then one moment at a time, one mistake at a time, one day at a time, one piece at a time, we finally realized that I've been doing this thing. Mm. And um, I've been trusting God most of the time. And when I haven't, God still keeps showing up in ways that I realize, oh, there he is. And I find that I'm really, really happy with where I am in my life, in the relationships that I've got, and, and in the mistakes that I've made and the people that I've hurt. I'm not happy about that. But I'm, I'm still, though, filled with the joy of knowing that, that God is helping to create healing in those people's lives from the hurt I caused, healing in my life from the hurt that I caused in my life, and trusting that he's going to work these things out in a way that still comes out into some good things. Mm. And I really believe that, mm. and I really watched that happen. And I still know that I'm still going to be really scared and God's going to still say, I'm here. Trust me. Mm. And there is a peace that comes with that that doesn't make any sense. And I just want to encourage people that are in the middle of that, keep trusting God and keep crying out the, hurt, the pain of your heart and if you're in a really good place, celebrate that, but also don't take for granted the good that's taking place because we still have a dark heart that we can still react mm -hmm. to things and just be aware of that so that we keep knowing I've got to trust God mm -hmm. in the good and in the bad. I love the way that in the, the book, the, the Prodigal God by Tim Keller, where he says there's two ways to leave God. One is by being very, very bad. The other is by being very, very good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like the two sons in the story mm -hmm. of the prodigal son. Is that either way, if I'm looking at what I'm doing and I'm looking for independence from God, that's going to take us away. Mm -hmm. But in either place, if I can look and go, no, I've got to have God because I can't do either of these paths by myself, then that's what it is that we desperately need. Hmm. Bill, when I met you and came under your leadership and care, it was a week-long program where we were participating in healing trauma. And the sort of liturgy of the day began every day with coming into a room with this really plush carpet and shoes off, sitting on the ground, and you were sitting on the ground, and you would lead us through meditation and a sort of centering prayer. And I get emotional even thinking back to those moments because I was very broken and I was very hopeful. I was open-hearted and really thirsty for transformation, but it was vulnerable because I was really in need. And each morning you began as the sun would rise, leading us through this um, uh, kind of a sanctified imagination where we'd have a different encounter with God, being led to a place where we would get to um, be curious about our own heart and about God's heart. And every morning 
I would leave that space flooded with possibility, flooded with promise, flooded with hope of anticipation and expectation of really good things when just right behind me in my rearview mirror of my life, I'd really made some unfortunate decisions that caused harm to people I cared about. And it really began a new practice of every day, beginning my days with centering prayer and meditation from that day. And you really fathered me in that. And when I actually hear your voice, it's as close to the father heart of God of Mm. any voice in my life because of that memory. And so in closing, on behalf of our friends and this privilege to bring you to them, I want to invite you, if you are interested in leading us in one of those meditations Mm. of our friends, wherever they are, just to pause for a few minutes and be here, be in this moment, be in your story, be with God and let God love you. Begin by closing your eyes, taking a good, slow, deep breath, filling your lungs. Feel the gift of the breath. And I want you to imagine being somewhere way away from much of civilization, where there are wildflowers, and you find yourself at the edge of a woods. As you breathe in, see if you can smell the air. Smell the trees. Hear the sounds of the edge of the woods. And you find that you're beginning to walk on a journey that's very important to you. In fact, this is an important journey in your life. You find yourself walking and walking through the woods. You find yourself, in fact, walking until it almost becomes dark. Where you see up ahead in a clearing, there's a campfire. You stop and actually warm yourself for a while. And by the fire, you find that you meet a wise guide, one who helps you understand the next part of your journey. The guide walks with you for a little bit further on the path. As he or she talks with you, you see lights up ahead that are lights through the windows of a cabin. Your guide leads you to the door where you remove your shoes and the guide says, Before you open the door, you must understand what this cabin is. It is your heart. When you step inside, you will see and feel the things in your heart openly. And you will have awareness of your deepest longings. While there, you won't be able to lie or pretend because that is only possible outside your heart. The only things you won't feel are those you are not able to bear at this time. So you put your hand on the door handle and open the door. You step inside this first room with the guide and you see it is filled with people for whom you have love 
and either are in your life now or have been in your life in the past. And you look around and you feel the warmth in this room. You see their faces. Look around and notice who is here. These people have been there for you for maybe a while or maybe a short time, but you've grown in relationship with these and you find your heart brimming over with love and appreciation for the people in this room. And in this room, you find that sense of stability and strength because these people are the ones who encourage you to be who it is that you are and encourage you to become a better person. At the other side of this room is a door leading to another room. You walk there with your guide, and you open it and step inside the second room. In this room are people with whom you have acted some way for which you feel remorse. Maybe there are some you hurt in some way or you betrayed or lied to, raged at, became indifferent to, or whatever happened, you see the truth in this room. They do not say anything to you or make any accusations, and you find that you cannot speak. You can only see what is true and feel. You may even be surprised to find that you feel some compassion and you can come back to this room at any time that you'd like in the future. Then you and your guide walk through this room and go to a door that leads to one more room. You open this door and you and your guide step into this third room where you see a fire in a fireplace and find that you and your guide are alone. All you are aware of is breathing and feeling all of the things in your heart. Notice, what is it you're longing for? Then a door at the other end of this room opens, and Jesus walks into this room. You look into his eyes and you see compassion. He walks straight to you, puts his arms around you and holds you lovingly and safely while you grieve the ache in your heart. Let yourself feel that. Hear what Jesus says to you. No matter how many things your guilt and shame confess, his love and forgiveness are more. Then he steps back a half step puts his hands on your arms, looks right into your eyes and says, you are my child and I am crazy about you. No expanse is wide enough, high enough, low enough or dark enough to keep me from you. I run to you. Let yourself hear anything else that he says to you. And then Jesus introduces you to the guide that you've been with. The guide is his spirit who will lead you back and will stay with you and continue to lead you always. 
And so imagine then as you walk out the back door of the cabin with your guide, knowing now who your guide is and knowing this guide will never leave you. Walking back through the woods, through the wildflowers, you find yourself just outside of where you're sitting. Imagine looking at the place where you're sitting and see the guide standing beside you. Then imagine coming back inside where you are, sitting where you're sitting, and feel your guide close by. Feel the presence of his spirit with you as you open your eyes and look around. Though you may not see him, he will not leave you or forsake you. And feel his presence. Welcome to being alive today. May you walk in strength and in truth. God is available to all people at every moment, (laughs) right? When we choose to to see with the eyes of our heart. Um, But he's entrusted something uniquely to your care and to the care of your bride, Lori. Um, (laughs) You guys are in a very sacred season of your life and you stewarded um, what you've been entrusted to through on-site for quite a while. And now you've moved on and been promoted to um, even a new level of offering uh, I I bet there are some listeners here that would just love particularly to find you and to come under some of the care uh, that you and Lori are providing. Mm-hmm. What sort of things do you offer and how do they find you? Yeah, well, um, one of the things when uh, when I retired from on-site, uh, Lori and I, I just knew that my life, there was, there was some more things. And uh, Lori and I just work so well together. Um, because she brings me things that I don't and vice versa. And, and we have a real relationship that's, that's, uh, that we do in front. And so we, we work a lot with couples. Mm-hmm. We uh, work a lot with couples who have, you know, gotten in trouble with something in, in their marriage and they're afraid that it's not going to work or it's, or they really need help and, or that there is trauma that's been impacting that, um, we also do our own separate private practices, but but we a lot do some of these couples intensives where we spend uh, two full days or three full days with a couple um, and just digging in deep and finding what are the messages that they've been believing and then been putting on each other in, in a relationship. And, and then we also do love to be able to speak to uh, groups um, be it a small group or a large group about different issues in, in our marriages or in our relationships. Uh, um, and it's, it's just fun to do that in a way that's very real, that's very candid. Um, one of the things that people will say to us after it's over is they'll go, 
God, we really loved hearing what you had to say, and it was great. But what we loved more than anything was seeing you all be a real couple in yes, front of us. Yes, it's very rare. Um, because that's just who we are. We're just kind of like real and goofy sometimes. And we're not trying to pretend because we can't be those people that, <laughs> that seem to really show up professionally. Um, but we do have, I believe, some real wisdom that's come from some of our own pain and then some of our own wisdom that we've learned. And, and so we decided... Um, with these days of social media, just to make a website, uh, we didn't know anything about it. And so and someone was like, well, what are you going to name yourselves? And I was like, well, how about since our last name is Loki, how about Bill and Laurie Loki? That's pretty creative. <laughs> so it's just, you know, <laughs> it almost seemed uh, goofy or basic, but uh, but we like it. So it literally is just Bill and Laurie Loki dot com. And um and going there can find a little bit more about us, but um, um, we love to do that, and, and we love to work with individual couples, but we also love to get the opportunity to speak to groups, whether it be a church or other kinds of groups, about not only what happens in a marriage, but also how trauma and those kinds of things in our lives impact um, us, and, um, and it's just it's just a passion that we've we've really felt called to, and we're doing it, and it's it's we have fun with it and it's also really fulfilling yeah after my experience with you and learning experiential therapy uh, i championed you and Lori coming into wild heart with our staff for a day retreat and it was incredible of doing some of these activities and really processing with a group and uh, doing story work and one of the unique aspects of the group work that you identified in our first time together is clinically 70% of the healing actually takes place when you're a passive participant. In other words, you may not be the center of the story or the sculpt, but we find our story in other people's stories. And so what's so beautiful about working with you and Lori as a couple in a group setting is that everyone that chooses to engage from their heart receives a huge blessing and a huge upgrade. Mm -hmm. And so for churches, for businesses, for organizations, for nonprofits, uh, listeners out there that are interested in doing some some deep, restorative, renewing work with their community, I recommend you reach out to BillAndLoriLoki.com.